0: The following is a President's Chapel by Professor Joel Kim, President of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this chapel message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Here we are at the beginning of our new school year. For those of you who are first year students, welcome. We've been praying for you. We are excited and delighted that you're here with us. And for those who are second, third, or perhaps fourth or fifth year students, welcome back. We hope that you had a wonderful summer practicing what you learned and being in the churches and local churches that you love, being able to serve Jesus Christ and serve his people. Well, this morning I have the privilege of sharing with you some thoughts regarding our upcoming year as we reflect upon our school as well as your school year and many of us who are engaged in this labor. I am a middle-aged man leading a middle-aged institution. That sounds kind of funny except for the fact that it is true that I'm not sure if you're aware, our school is quickly turning 40 in the upcoming couple years. In 1979, around this time, our first two Roberts, Robert Strimple and Robert Dendolk, for those of you who are unaware, our first three presidents were all named Roberts, Robert Strimple, Robert Dendolk, and Robert Godfrey. Our first two Roberts were here in Southern California before the third joined them. They were busily beginning a new reformed institution on the West Coast. This was an arduous yet joyful task of establishing a confessional reform school in an area where such schools did not actually exist. For a year, they prepared the institution, and classes began in the fall of 1980. So within about a year or so, we'll be looking toward the celebration of us becoming middle-aged, middle-aged institution, 40 years old, in fact, where 25 students joined on the first day to actually begin their class work. Perhaps it is because the institution's middle-aged, or perhaps simply because I am middle-aged. I've been receiving a lot of questions that begin with why, and in many ways, personally, reflecting on many questions that begin with why. Questions like these. Why insist on theological education and educated ministers when many churches and parachurch organizations criticize seminary education as nice but often unnecessary, or even perhaps detrimental to one's piety, summarized in statements like, seminary is a cemetery. My guess is that you've heard that before at some point. Why persist in personal and residential education, even investing enormous amount of time and resources in a student village, when there are seemingly more efficient ways of training pastors and leaders in this age, this age of rapid development and deployment of technology. Why invest so much on language-based, rigorous, and structured educational model instead of focusing on practical and relevant theological discussions and flexible and personalized curriculum? After all, the world is changing rapidly, and the need to keep up with the needs of our times is great. Why hold on so tightly to confessional reform theology that seems nice and quaint as we reflect upon our confessional heritage and consider it our foundation, our base, as well as our boundary, but seemingly so irrelevant and archaic in the ever-changing language and culture of our churches? Perhaps you've been asked the final question here. Why spend two three, four, or perhaps even more years away from family and friends for a calling that does not guarantee success, a calling that does not promise riches, and that does not offer the accolades and adulations of the world. And if you didn't know those things, I'm here to remind you, those are not promised to you as you study here at Westminster Seminary, California. What drives seminaries, professors that are here, staff that serve you behind the scenes, and the students alike here at Westminster Seminary, California, now almost for 40 years. It's difficult for us to answer these questions comprehensively in one talk by one particular individual that serves this institution, but I have been reflecting on on these questions And 1 Timothy has been the book that's drawn my attention for some time, particularly the passage that we read this morning. As you know well, Paul is writing to a beloved disciple who serves a church that he loves very much. The intimate relationship between Paul and the Christians in Ephesus is well known. For nearly three years he taught them daily, pastored them with tears, and healed many with power. Luke records that in Ephesus, quote, The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The church's affection for Paul is palpable in Acts 20, when the elders of Ephesus met with Paul, who was on his way to Jerusalem on the island of Miletus. There was much weeping, we are told, because the elders believed that they would not see him again. Yet, Ephesus remained a difficult soil. Idols were publicly worshipped and sold. Presence of evil spirits were well known. And when the livelihood of the craftsmen who made the idols were affected, a near riot broke out with the crowd proclaiming, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Moreover, the church of Ephesus was also struggling. Social pressure internal dissension and discord, and theological controversies were not uncommon within the church. In particular, Paul begins and ends this letter writing against false teachers in chapter 1, verses 3 through 20, and chapter 6, verses 3 through 21, who teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose, according to chapter 4, consciences are seared. This is the context in which Timothy is ministering, contesting idols, social pressures, and theological unfaithfulness. And in the midst of this tumult, much can be said. But in this summary passage of 1 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy of the very things that he must keep squarely before him and those whom he oversees and teaches. This is what he must keep before him always and every way. And the two things, he remind, two things he reminds Timothy, and therefore the church, were these. Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Verses 14 and 15 remind us of Paul's personal plans as well as the reason why he writes when he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul certainly believes that the message of Christ Jesus changes lives. And as everyday disciples, we ought to live lives worthy of our Lord and Savior. However, what Paul has in mind here is not primarily about the conduct and behavior of the individual Christians who desire to live for the Lord, but his mind is fixated on the way that the people of God, the community of God, the church gathered by Christ Jesus our Lord should behave as he says, it is necessary, Paul said, live together with propriety and wisdom. And throughout the chapters of 1 Timothy, he focused on false teachers, public assembly of worship, officers in the church, and the diaconal ministries within the church serving those who are weak among us. And in the midst of his teachings on life together is found these threefold references to the church the household of God, the church of the living God, and A pillar and buttress of our faith. Paul's mind is on the church. He talks about the household of God. Although not common in Paul, the phrase carries a millennia-long concept of God coming and dwelling among his people as promised. When Jacob wrestled with God, he named the place Bethel and proclaimed, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God, we are told. Having been rescued from the land of Egypt, the house of slavery, we are told that the people of God were called to bring their offerings into the house of the Lord your God. According to Exodus 23, when the temple once destroyed was rebuilt and dedicated, we are told by Ezra these words. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God. House of God with joy. And Isaiah looked forward to that day, what he called the last days. Last days. When all the nations will come to the house of God. In the midst of hostility... In the midst of brokenness and sin, the church remains a divine dwelling place. The Emmanuel promise of God now fulfilled and promised for all who gather and for all of eternity. But it's not only referenced as the household of God. We are reminded that the church is the church of the living God. In a relative clause, the house of God is further defined the church, where the emphasis is, of the living God. It is likely a polemic against the pagan idol worship so prevalent in Ephesus and throughout the Roman Empire of the first century. Against, against the man-made, dead, and ineffectual gods of many, Christians worship and serve the Lord who creates life, gives life, and he sustains life. It seems almost silly, perhaps folly in the eyes of the world, to speak of the living God when the followers of the way in Ephesus were dwarfed in sheer number and influence and relevance in comparison to those who are following after dead idols. Yet along with the Christians of the early church, we find quite confidence not in the size... Not in the influence, not in the relevance of the church, but in the living God who dwells among her. Here, this is the church of the living God. And then he references the church yet once again. When in apposition, he reminds us that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Because of God's truth, the church, um, God's presence, The church is called the pillar and buttress of truth. In a small but insightful commentary by one of our own, Steve Ball, he reminds us that this building analogy is an important one. I don't know if he knew that. He had a commentary on the pastoral letters. Now you do. Go and find it and utilize it to your benefit. When the building analogy used here by Paul, quote, would have spoken strongly to someone living in first century Ephesus. The city was experiencing a remarkable building program, some of them of massive proportions. The temple of the city goddess Artemis Ephesia was the largest temple building in antiquity and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its elaborately carved columns and foundation stones were of monumental size, which was particularly prized in a region that often suffered devastating earthquakes, not unlike ours here in many ways. The church, in being referenced as a pillar and buttress of truth, was a meaningful one for the Ephesian church gathered. It points to the church's immovable firmness in combating false teachings found not only outside the church, but the false teachings found also within the church, It spoke of the firm foundation, immovable base, unchanging truth upon which the church was established and built. Moreover, its visible nature, indeed, as the church, its visible nature points to the proclamation of the church, not only the defense of truth, but the offense of truth. Not hidden or covered, but displayed without hesitation or fear for all to see. Here Paul reminds us that the people of Jesus Christ gathered as church belong to a place called the house of God. Church of the living God who resides among us. And a pillar and buttress of the truth. His mind is somewhat on the truth. And his mind, as it rests upon the truth, focuses on the church. But it's not just the church, is it? Here, having mentioned the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth, it prompts Paul to give an extended attention to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It almost seems ill-fitting here. But for him, having discussed the church as being the place where the truth is found, he cannot stray From the fundamental truth that makes church, the church. And that's about Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is especially important, given the context of false teaching. So rampant within and without the church. As chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And he began this way in three when he says, Remain at Ephesus, talking to Timothy, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. What is the truth? Well, at the end, without getting into the individual points made here, it's about Jesus Christ. Are you surprised? It's about Jesus Christ. It says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul summarizes In contrast to the slogan made popular in Ephesus, where they say, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul speaks of the one who is truly great. And he exalts the greatness of another in six parts, when he again reminds us of his manifestation and his humiliation in taking on human form. Yet his vindication reminiscent of Romans chapter 1 proclamation among the nation and the power of the word as described in Acts of cutting people's hearts so that they believe what the promise of glory set before them. At the heart of the truth taught, the truth proclaimed, and the truth defended by Paul and the church stands a person. The person of Jesus Christ. To the mystery-loving and wisdom-seeking Romans, the truth that the church declares and defends is simply about Jesus Christ. There are many who are seeking wisdom, seeking special knowledge, and to them he says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 2 and and I... When I came to you, Paul said, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To another believers, seeking knowledge and wisdom, the church in Colossae, he simply says to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The true mystery once hidden, now revealed in history, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says he has been called to simply, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Only him. We proclaim. This is not the musings of someone engaged in philosophical or intellectual exercises. For Paul is intimately and personally familiar with the power of the message of Jesus Christ. We are told only a few chapters earlier in First 1 Timothy 1.13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy, he said. But I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed, superflowed, went beyond any imagination and expectation for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knew that his life is not about him. And may I remind us that your calling and what you do here is not about you. Hard to hear in some ways for all of us. But Paul knew that his life was not about him since his life is wholly a product of grace in Christ Jesus. He certainly did not create or earn grace, but he received it. It is by the mercy and grace of God that Paul has life in the first place. He certainly understands that he cannot bestow grace. He cannot impart or infuse grace into the lives of others. And this is important for us to remember we are not the Christ. After all, he himself received grace of Jesus Christ. Moreover, he certainly understands that he depends on great grace for his daily sustenance. His past His present and his future all depend upon the mercy and grace of God who gives graciously and generously to the undeserving in and through Jesus Christ. Last night, one of my favorite nights of the year, as is the case for many of us who are here teaching and also serving, we are reminded once again how the Lord providentially brings people together in surprising ways, beyond planning, beyond imagination. From all over the world they came. Here, from the world people came, and from here they go forth to the world. And many of these things cannot be planned out in our planning workbook. Here, the Lord's grace is at work among us. Each of these statements recorded by Paul in 1 Timothy 3 require an explanation. And I realize we can take the time to do so, but not this morning. But I do want to draw your attention to the last of the statements, where he says, taken up in glory. It seems appropriate, Paul, who sees such intimate connection between glory and Christ Jesus, will draw our eyes to glory itself. For in Psalm 73, not unlike the Christians in the first century, and perhaps many of us in America in the 21st century, the author Asaph describes what it feels like to pursue faithfulness In the midst of unfaithfulness, having described all the difficulties and suffering and weaknesses he felt, he summarizes his own sentiment this way in verse 16 when he says, but when I thought how to understand these things, the world around him, it seemed to me a wearisome task, he said. I wonder if you felt that way. But in this phrase, the household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is reminded of the coming glory. One and prepared for them by Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.17 reminds us of the beauty that's before us. For this slight momentary affliction... Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. John Calvin, commenting on this page, simply says, Thus both the world though the obedience of faith and in the per- through the obedience of faith and in the person of Christ a wonderful change was wrought for he was exalted from the mean state of a servant to the father's right hand that to him every knee will bow and we look forward to that day when we see him face to face as that hymn says without a veil the glory that awaits Our church. I would say, friends, Paul is slightly fixated on the church and Christ who built this church. This brings us back to the questions of why. Why do we do what we do? As faculty, it's not the grading of your papers that excite us every morning as we get to our offices. Why do the staff do what they do? Ever busy, ever working, in order to take care of the little things so that you don't have to worry about them behind the recognition that many people do not even see. Why do you labor every single day as you read As you learn, as you emulate, as you continue to labor to grow. Here, simply put, it's for Christ and his church. Perhaps I can be a little cheeky and say it's for Christ, his gospel, and his church. We do what we do, and we do it the way we do it, not because of our stubborn inability to change. If change and correction are necessary, we must. It's not about a wholesale rejection of all things new. If improvements and refresh are beneficial, we should. Nor is it some odd sense of superiority, a desire for smallness or irrelevance, in order to claim ourselves distinct. If we must grow, we must grow. No, we are who we are because we want to serve Christ by serving his church well. For as you know well, seminaries like ours exist for the churches, not the other way around. The early modern model for theological education came from the great universities, where theological faculties that supported by the state trained clergy for ministry often in the national church. Seminaries, however, are relatively recent phenomena that focused on training for ministry after first receiving their undergraduate education. It functioned as a structured apprenticeship. It's a structured apprenticeship that combined the rigors of academics and the requirements of studying of the Word in such a way that you become experts and students of the Word of God with the practice of pastoral ministry alongside Those with experience. As one scholar put it, evangelical seminaries are born and raised in the bosom of the Christian community. Existing to prepare its leaders, relying on its resources, and thus are schools of the church. Of the church, by the church, and ultimately for the church. The spiritual health of the church and her ability to be the pillar and buttress of the church, church, truth, require healthy, trained, and committed, and passionate pastors and leaders. For that end, seminaries like Westminster Seminary, California, exist. And we believe without hesitation that what the church needs is the same today as it was 20 centuries ago. The truth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In this pluralistic environment, both in the 1st and the 21st century, the belief in and conviction for the truth is clearly under attack. Even within the church, the social, economic, and political world make their way into it Don't misunderstand me here, brothers and sisters. Engaging the culture, helping the church understand our times, and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in the midst of change are all important aspects of the work we do and we must do. Yet, our first and primary task is to teach and uphold the truth of Jesus Christ for the sake of the church. There certainly is price to pay in popularity and growth, but a laser-like focus on the majors, that it is for us, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what the world needs, even if that's not what the world wants. And along with the truth of Jesus Christ, the church in our day and age needs the sacrificial love of Christ Jesus indicated so well as he took on human form. The church needs pastors and leaders who love the word, who trust the word, who know the word, and proclaim the word with faithfulness and clarity and with confidence. In addition, the church needs pastors and leaders who, because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, Love the people of Christ Jesus who are gathered. For the practice of ministry is not learned in books or online only, but in a community of faith. By watching and emulating those who are mature, by living out among peers who encourage and sharpen, and by discipling those who desire to be disciples of Christ Jesus. For this end, we are here, for Christ and the Church. A couple presidents ago, Robert Dendalk actually wrote these words in his inaugural address and summarized our task this way. Our task must be to be men of academic excellence who have been with Jesus who can reach out and speak to the philosophies and religions of our age, as well as to the common man, and both by message and by our lives. It's about teaching and living out the teachings of Christ Jesus for the sake of the church, so that he may ever remain a household of God, the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Friends, we are now a middle-aged institution. Maybe institutions shouldn't care about 40 years, as many of us do, and care much about celebrating or perhaps lamenting reaching that milestone. But it does give us time to reflect and even remember the Lord's faithfulness to us and the Lord's faithfulness to us through certain men and women who walk before us. But it also allows us to look forward and hope, not only for the upcoming year, but for the decades to come, that we may ever remain faithful. So friends, may the Lord, who blessed us nearly 40 years in, his, in this humbling yet exhilarating task of service to him by serving the church, continue to serve this institution and many who call this their home to bless us this year and the years to come that we may remain faithful to christ for the sake of his church may you labor faithfully this year to that end and for that goal let's pray thank you for this year O lord We come with excitement, not because of our abilities, not because of the things that we have prepared. But as we lean upon your grace and trust in you and depend upon you, we are excited to see how you, by your spirit, will unfold before us the wonderful task of learning, growing, and serving your church. May this institution and all those who represent and come out from this institution be always faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that our simple desire would be to exalt his name, and that as we exalt the name of Christ Jesus on high, that our task will be to strengthen the church, that it may ever remain in the midst of tumult and challenges and changes, a pillar and the buttress of the truth, where all those who are hungry and needy may come and hear the gospel message of Christ Jesus our Lord, and to be saved and to be accepted into the glorious future and hope that only Christ Jesus provides. We thank you and we pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.